Welcome to Pete's Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. For this episode, we're going to pretend a little bit. You have three patients on your schedule for the day, and appropriately enough for this time of year, all of them have a sore throat. What you have to do is figure out who needs something more than just rest and Tylenol, which is really why we spent all that money on medical school. We already covered ear infections and pneumonia in previous episodes, so you get a little bit of a head start by knowing neither one of those is the diagnosis here, but there are still a lot of possibilities on the table. Our first patient is a six-year-old girl who's been feeling sick for about four days with fevers and a runny nose to go along with her sore throat. It hasn't been anything too terrible. She's taking plenty of fluids and her fevers actually seem to be getting better, but she's still coughing and pretty miserable and a lot of the kids in her class have been missing school lately. On your exam, her lungs are clear, but her throat is red, she has some enlarged cervical lymph nodes, and clear rhinorrhea. So this one is probably just a cold. Generalized sick symptoms like nasal congestion, runny nose, sore throat, and cough, plus or minus fevers that get better after the first few days, almost always are. The typical viral upper respiratory infection has nasal symptoms, cough, or both, and either of those can cause a sore throat from either postnasal drainage or irritation from coughing. Plus, the virus itself can cause some inflammation. If fevers are present, they usually happen early in the course and get better as the nasal and respiratory symptoms increase. One other note, the specifics of the nasal drainage don't really mean anything. Parents tend to get worried about thick green snot, but in and of itself, it isn't really a sign of anything better or worse than clear runny drainage, and it's normal to go from one to the other and back again as the illness progresses. Kids get a lot of colds. Studies have shown that before age six, they average six to eight colds per year, and up to one a month during the peak season between September and April. And that's the average, which means that there are a lot of kids who get even more than that. Colds usually last anywhere from 5 to 14 days, and when a kid has a cold for two weeks out of every four, it's easy to see how so many parents come in saying their little one has been sick for months on end. The reason kids, and really all of us, get so many colds is a combination of variety and a quirk in immunology. You actually develop pretty long-lasting immunity after an infection with rhinovirus, adenovirus, and enterovirus, the problem is, there are so many different strains that there's always another one out there that you don't have any protection against. For the other major virus groups that cause colds, RSV, parainfluenza, and coronavirus, there aren't as many serotypes, but unfortunately, we don't develop such a durable immune response, and the same strains can get us again and again. Contact with other people is the biggest risk factor when it comes to getting respiratory viruses, whether it's work, school, or daycare. We have a tendency to think of daycare as this huge cesspool and a major risk factor for kids getting sick, but it's really not any different than going to school. A 2002 study by Thomas Ball and his group in the Archives of Pediatric and Adolescent Medicine surveyed families from birth through age 13 to track the influence of daycare on the number of colds kids had. They found that families of kids who went to daycare did report more frequent colds at two years old but were actually sick less often between the ages of 6 and 11 before the two groups evened out at the end of the study. So yes, kids in daycare do get sick more often, but it's probably better to think of them as getting sick earlier and building up immunity. Once everyone starts school, the kids who stayed home as infants and toddlers catch up on the number of colds. 
Before we commit to saying this girl has a cold, it might be worth thinking about testing her for strep throat. Kids older than three with strep get fevers, headaches, nausea, vomiting, sore throat, enlarged cervical lymph nodes, tonsillar exudates, and petechiae on their palate, all of which sound a lot like symptoms you can get with a cold. And kids under three have even more generic symptoms. Even the symptoms that are a little bit more strep-specific, the exudates and petechiae, aren't all that helpful when you're trying to make a diagnosis. The CENTER score, C-E-N-T-O-R, is a symptom-based scoring scale for diagnosing strep. You get one point each for being between 3 and 14 years old, having swollen or exudative tonsils, enlarged anterior cervical lymph nodes, fevers higher than 100.4, and for not having a cough. Unfortunately, study after study has shown that the center score isn't sensitive or specific enough to be very useful in making the call whether or not to test kids with suspected strep. So who do you test? The Infectious Disease Society of America and the American Academy of Pediatrics have pretty similar recommendations that come down to testing any children or adolescents that have evidence of tonsillopharyngitis, that's erythema, edema, or exudates, a scarlatiniform rash, that fine sandpaper-like rash, and absent symptoms of a viral infection like cough, conjunctivitis, diarrhea, and other things like that. You should also test anyone who's been exposed to a known case of strep throat and has symptoms that fit with strep. When you make the decision to test, for kids older than 3, the recommendation is to do a rapid antigen test and follow up with a throat culture if the rapid test is negative. The antigen tests have great specificity, but plenty of false negative results. If the rapid is positive, you can skip waiting on the culture results and go straight to treatment. Nucleic acid amplification tests for strep have started to become more popular, but there's some controversy about whether or not to use them to make a diagnosis. NAT is a lot more sensitive and specific than traditional rapid antigen testing, and the results come back faster than a throat culture. But the downside is that it's more expensive and won't identify other bacterial causes of pharyngitis since it's only looking for strep DNA. It also takes a day or two to come back, so you might miss the chance to collect a throat culture if it is negative. It's mainly that reason, the possibility of missing other pathogens, that rapid antigen and culture testing is still the official recommendation, although you're not necessarily wrong to use a NAT. However you end up testing, if the patient comes back positive, you should treat with a 10-day course of penicillin or amoxicillin. Getting back to our patient, the cough and runny nose make her seem more like a virus than strep, so we give some advice on symptom management and tell them to come back if things don't start getting better in the next week or so. After she heads home, the next sore throat comes in. This time, it's a 7-year-old boy who's been sick for two weeks, coughing all day and wiping his nose constantly. He hasn't had any fevers that they know of, but his symptoms haven't gotten any better and might actually be getting a little bit worse. His exam is nothing too exciting, thick but clear nasal discharge, some pharyngeal erythema, normal tympanic membranes, and clear lungs. Alright, this one sounds like just another cold, but it actually fits the criteria for acute bacterial sinusitis. There are some people that seem to use the term sinus infection and cold almost interchangeably, which is a problem because one of them benefits from antibiotics while the other just needs time. The most recent clinical practice guideline from the AAP came out in 2013 and covers patients from 1 through 18 years old. According to them, you can make a diagnosis of bacterial sinusitis in three different cases. One, 
If a patient presents with persistent nasal discharge, daytime cough, or both that's lasted longer than 10 days without improvement, which was the case for our patient. Two, if the patient has a worsening course over time with symptoms progressing after the five to six day mark where most colds start improving, or if fevers recur after the patient had initially improved. Or three, a patient with severe onset of symptoms with fevers of 102 or higher and purulent nasal discharge for three consecutive days, which is longer than fevers usually hang around in a cold. Those three cases are really the only times you should call something a sinus infection. Bad breath and thick green snot aren't pleasant for kids or their parents, but they also aren't specific at all for sinusitis. Physical exam also isn't all that helpful. The nasal turbinates can be swollen and red in sinus infections or colds, and percussing the sinuses for tenderness isn't a reliable clinical sign. Labs and imaging really won't help you either. Nasopharyngeal cultures are incredibly unreliable since there's so much bacteria that just lives up there, and imaging isn't recommended because the membranes in the upper respiratory tract are continuous through the nose, sinuses, pharynx, and middle ears, so a simple URI will cause inflammation everywhere. Bacterial sinusitis is a history-based diagnosis, and the most important thing you can do is ask enough questions to make sure a kid truly has had symptoms for more than 10 days and isn't just unlucky enough to get back-to-back -back colds. When you do make the diagnosis, patients who have a severe onset of symptoms or a worsening course should get antibiotics from the start while kids with lingering but not necessarily worsening symptoms can have the option of starting antibiotics or waiting two or three more days to see if their symptoms start improving. Amoxicillin with or without clavulane is the first line for sinusitis, just like it is for ear infections, since they're both caused by most of the same bacteria, Streptopneumo, Haemophilus, and Moraxella. If the patient is vomiting or can't take oral antibiotics, Ceftriaxone every 24 hours is an option until they're able to start taking meds by mouth. Beyond how to make the diagnosis and what antibiotics to prescribe, there isn't a lot of evidence behind the rest of the recommendations. There hasn't been any systematic study of the right duration of therapy, and there's a wide range in clinical practice, anywhere from 10 to 28 days. A few sources I found were in favor of a middle ground, giving antibiotics for either 10 days or 7 days after symptoms had resolved, whichever was longer. The AAP team also couldn't find enough evidence to make a recommendation about nasal steroids, over-the-counter decongestants, antihistamines, or saline rinses for symptom management. That doesn't mean they can't be helpful and aren't worth trying, it's just that there isn't enough data to say either way. With our patient, after confirming all the history, we send them out with a prescription for amoxicillin, which makes everyone happy because it's the pink stuff that tastes good. We also let them know to give us a call if things aren't getting better in the next three to four days. Our last patient starts out sounding like more of the same. He's a five-year-old with a sore throat who's been having fevers and eating less over the last three days. On exam, he's breathing comfortably, but looks sick and has a hard time opening his mouth to give us a look at his throat. He has a lot of enlarged cervical lymph nodes and seems a little anxious about letting us touch his neck. Nothing here sounds too bad, but this case shows that little things matter when you're trying to decide which patients are sick. Trismus, that difficulty opening the mouth, difficulty swallowing, neck discomfort, and a prolonged or persistent course are all things that should make you think about two of the more serious causes of sore throat 
peritonsillar, and retropharyngeal abscesses. Both are polymicrobial infections, with peritonsillar abscesses affecting the area between the tonsillar capsule and the pharyngeal muscles, and retropharyngeal abscesses developing in the space between the posterior wall of the pharynx and the prevertebral fascia. There's also a lot of symptom overlap between the two, with fevers, sore throat, difficulty swallowing, and cervical lymphadenopathy. It's more common, at least on test questions, for peritonsillar abscesses to present with a neck mass or deviation of the uvula. Just like with sinusitis, a prolonged course or symptoms that worsen after an initial improvement should make you think about a more significant infection. Demographics can also help you out some, because retropharyngeal abscesses are most common in kids under 5, while peritonsillar infections are more likely to happen in adolescents. Of the two, retropharyngeal abscess is probably the more dangerous because there's a risk the swelling can lead to airway obstruction. If a patient has strider or other signs of obstruction, you have to be exceptionally careful on exam and may even need to get them to an operating room for a full examination in case any kind of airway intervention needs to be done. In both cases, clinical symptoms are usually enough to make the diagnosis without any additional help from labs or imaging. Our patient's age and trismus tip things a little bit towards retropharyngeal abscess, but other than that, he doesn't have any uvular deviation, strider, or other findings to push us in either direction. It's almost like this case was specifically written to make a more involved discussion, so let's talk a little bit about labs and imaging. Labs really won't show much more than nonspecific signs of inflammation, like elevated white count, platelets, ESR, and CRP. But throat and blood cultures do have the potential to be helpful for narrowing down your antibiotic coverage down the road. Imaging is what's going to be most helpful, but as always, there are some things to think about. For both peritonsillar and retropharyngeal abscesses, a CT scan is the most sensitive and specific imaging, but because you're radiating sensitive tissue, particularly the thyroid, the recommendation is to try to avoid the imaging if you can. For retropharyngeal abscesses, a lateral neck x-ray will show a thickening of the prevertebral soft tissue, but it has a high false positive rate due to variations in positioning and changes that can be seen when the patient swallows or breathes. For a peritonsillar abscess, an intraoral ultrasound can help localize the fluid collection, but in pediatrics, it's obviously hard to find patients who are willing to let you put an ultrasound probe in their mouth. There are some decision-making tools out there to help identify patients who need a CT, but as a general rule, if you can't rule an abscess in or out, it's probably worth the risk. Getting the diagnosis right matters because it's going to affect your management plan. Both situations are likely to need some help from ENT, but there's a difference in when you call them. Peritonsillar abscesses are usually drained right away and can sometimes be done with just local anesthesia if the patient is cooperative enough. After the abscess is drained, you treat with 7-10 to 10 days of acephalosporin, penicillin, or clindamycin while you wait for culture results. Patients with peritonsillar abscesses can generally be managed as outpatients after the drainage is done unless you're concerned about hydration or pain control or if there are complications from the drainage procedure. Retropharyngeal abscesses, on the other hand, should all be admitted for airway monitoring and IV antibiotics starting with cephalosporins, clindamycin, or penicillins. The general recommendation is to give up to 48 hours of antibiotic treatment before surgery because as many as 60% of cases will resolve without needing an operation. If the patient is showing signs of improvement at the 48-hour mark, 
you can keep treating with antibiotics and make the switch to an oral regimen to finish out a total of 14 days of therapy once the fevers have resolved and the patient is clinically stable. Because our patient was ill-appearing and we couldn't quite decide between peritonsillar and retropharyngeal abscess, we ended up sending him for a lateral neck film because we wanted to make sure his airway was okay. Sure enough, there was soft tissue swelling concerning for a retropharyngeal abscess, so he got admitted to the hospital to start on IV antibiotics. That's our episode on sore throats. There are, of course, a lot more things on the differential, but I tried to make this a pretty good sampling of common and serious diagnoses. For take-home points, remember that rhinorrhea, cough, and fevers early in the course are all signs of a viral illness and that kids get a ton of colds. A more abrupt onset of symptoms, absence of a cough, and tonsillar exudates should make you think more about strep throat, while a prolonged course or symptoms that get worse after they start to get better are flags for bacterial sinusitis. Retropharyngeal and peritonsillar abscesses take a high index of suspicion, so be on the lookout for kids who look sicker, have trouble opening their mouth or moving their neck, and have a harder time swallowing than you'd expect from a typical sore throat. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us. You can send any comments or suggestions for future episodes to Soup. that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P at gmail.com. We're going to take a little break for the holiday, but we'll be back in early February with more Pete's Soup.